0: This is Dr. Carmen Simon, author of Impossible to Ignore, Creating Memorable Contents to Influence Decisions, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of
1: modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Also, if you're listening to the show right now, and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery, please hop on Twitter and tell us where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is marketingbook. Today we're joined by Dr. Carmen Simon and we're going to talk about her new book, Impossible to Ignore, Creating Memorable Content to Influence Decisions. A cognitive scientist, she is the co-founder of Rexy Media, a presentation design and training company. She holds doctorate degrees in both instructional technology and cognitive psychology, and is a recognized expert in presentation design, delivery, and audience engagement. And she was once a United Nations interpreter. Dr. Simon, congratulations on Impossible to Ignore, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, and uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening.
1: So, she is Dr. Simon, but for the listener's benefit, I have permission to call her Carmen, so don't don't think I didn't ask that. <laughs> now, in the book, uh, which is very interesting to me, one of the many stories is you grew up in communist Romania.
0: I sure did, yes.
1: Now, I— Of course, I hear that and I think, oh, were you required to be a gymnast when you were young?
0: (laughs) I love that question. It's not so much a requirement as almost an aspiration. You feel guilty for not at least pursuing it. And I'm embarrassed to say that I tried it and I didn't have those kinds of skills. My entry point was rhythmic gymnastics. Are you familiar with that?
1: Oh, yeah. I I, I do it all the time. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Pretty interesting to watch because we see it in the Olympics every four years, but they, they'll uh, dance around with a stick and have a, a long piece of ribbon.
0: Exactly. Sticks and ribbons. And you know, when you're at an age that you feel you have to make an impression, especially on boys, let me just say that that's not your entry point. That's <laughs> not your window. <laughs>
1: okay. So uh, all you younger listeners out there, you know that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The lesson from that is really pick a sport or a field that, you know, will enhance your uh, social image, not, uh, not denigrate it.
1: So let me uh, just open with one ep- opening excerpt, and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. This is on page two. At some point, we all create something and hope that other people will act on it, read it, listen to it, like it, buy it, or recommend it to others. We want to influence people's choices. But how do we get others to act in our favor in an age of increasing competition, complexity, and noise? This book reveals how to spark action by using an overlooked variable, memory. So explain what you mean when you say in the book that memory is a means to an end.
0: Memory is definitely a means to an end because if you think about it, and even when you don't think about it, there is no decision that you have ever made that hasn't been influenced by memory. So tell me a decision you've made recently. Trivial or a big one, it doesn't matter. Give me an example from your own inventory of recent decisions.
1: I bought a coffee maker for the office.
0: Oh, okay. So there are at least five choices that were probably facing you when you made your purchase. Why did you buy that one?
1: I knew and recognized the brand name, and it was a Keurig. And I liked the idea of being able to put the the people who work here to be able to put the little container in there to make a cup of coffee quickly and easily.
0: There you go. And I think the key word from what you just described was recognizing a brand name, and recognition is directly linked to memory. And um, I'm so glad that you gave this example because um, it helps us accomplish uh, a few things. One is to help us realize that there isn't any decision out there, conscious or sub- or, or subconscious, that is not fueled by memory. And, uh, and the other is the epiphany that I've had as I was writing the book, which is um, memory hasn't evolved to help us keep track of the past like conventional wisdom would dictate. Memory has evolved to help us keep track of the future. So, as you're looking at that coffee maker, you're not necessarily listing in your mind all the wonderful things that have happened to you in the past, where coffee is concerned. You're already anticipating what your coworkers might need or what you might do with that in the future. So, um, you're you're already in the next few moments, not necessarily in only making the decision only for that present moment.
1: Another question is: say if you're if you're part of people's habits you become part of the memories. Can you explain that?
0: Oh, yes, for sure, because uh, imagine a habit is, is conscious at first, but becomes automatic or subconscious afterwards, so let's just say taking the same route to work every day. Initially you will be thinking about it more just to choose the most efficient route, and then that just becomes part of um, of your routines. And all of those routines are essentially memorized algorithms. They're a set of steps that you tend to do over and over and over again because they have given you some uh, some rewards in the past. So that's one of the easiest ways, in fact, to become memorable, is to associate yourself with a habit that you you already have. I'm thinking of a campaign that was done by uh, Nicorette. Are you familiar with that uh, brand, the um, anti-smoking
1: Oh, right, right. Product. Nicorette, Nicorette gum, I think.
0: Yeah, Nicorette. They do gums, they do drops, they do patches, all sorts of uh, products. But I remember seeing a while back uh, Nicorette Matches. So imagine when you are trying to convince somebody not to smoke, you have to step back and ask, well, what are their habits? And obviously, the, the the initial response is they're smoking. But what else is involved in smoking? Quite often, people are using matches to light up their cigarettes. So why not infiltrate first in one of the habits that they have? So here are these matches that have the Nicorette brands on top of them, plus their website, and that is an initial step, and much much easier than trying to appeal to people's cognition, especially when they're just so habit driven. Oh,
1: I must say that's some brilliant marketing. I had not heard of that. The idea of the Nicorette matches. Wow. So what? There's there's some steps uh, that you you outline. What what are some of the steps towards influencing memory and decisions?
0: So if we're thinking about memory differently, which is memory has evolved to help us keep track of the future... Then we have to ask, okay, we're sharing content with our customers, with our clients, with our viewers sometime at point A, very much like you and I are doing right now. This is a point A of our conversation. And we hope that they remember and act on what they remember sometime in the future at point B. And that point B could be a few hours from now. It could be a few weeks from now. And then we have to ask, okay, so what is it that they will see in their world or what will happen at point B? And typically there are three phases at point B when you're no longer in the room or people are no longer listening to your content or reading it in some way. They will see some cues, very much like the matches were a cue for the cigarette smoker. And they will be searching their memories. Oh, what was I supposed to do with that cue? Is there something that uh, I should be reminded of? And if the uh, intention is strong enough, if the motivation is strong enough, then people are more likely to act. So there's a cue, there's a search of memory, and there is an acting on intention that uh, that happens. So it's those three phases. And if you learn how to attend to those three phases, not at point B, but already at point A, so preparing people for those three things when you're no longer in the room, I think that's the key to future marketing.
1: Can you say more about cues? What What how, how what are what are the other examples of cues and and how can we start to incorporate those types of things in our in our marketing
0: cues are signals that you can uh, you can give to people that would dictate a course of action and you can make them very obvious you can make them um a bit more more subtle they can be vis- visual or offered by the environment they could be uh, internal cues some people might call them triggers and, um, they are instrumental in understanding, for instance, if we're talking about habits, usually most of your, your habits will be powered by a cue. For example, I'm just a, a big chocolate lover. I enjoy chocolate. And each time I sit on a, on a chair here at work, somehow I, I crave chocolate. I just have to have a piece of chocolate. So that chair is my cue that something is, is going to happen. If I wanted to give up my chocolate habit. I would have to sit <laughs> to sit somewhere else.
1: <laughs> wow!
0: But uh, you know, the, the, on um, on television, for instance, when the commercials are about to start, you hear a specific music, and that's your cue that one program is ending, and then another one is going to to start. If you if you see the butter, you immediately look for the breads because one is a cue to uh, to look for for the other element that is associated with it. And I think that for any marketer, if you want to hone your skills in this area, memory is nothing but associations, really, between various concepts. And the more that we build cues and we associate those strongly... With our content, the stronger the memory for that content is, because your customers are not going to be sitting around waiting for memories to just come onto their minds and immediately act. Usually, something triggers a memory for whatever you want people to do, and um, the stronger the cue, the stronger the uh, the action. For instance, let's just uh, think of an example. I think I included this in uh, in the book as well. You know this trend these days that you have to bring your bags to the grocery store in order to. Save the environment, and how often do you have those bags in the car? Uh, mine are in the trunk, and yet I find myself in the store thinking, "Darn it, I left those darn." Oh, <laughs> those that's right. Bags that's right. The, yes, this was in the, in the book. Trunk again. Yes. So, if there was an organization out there trying to, to educate us and to remind us, "Hey, the more you bring your bags into the store, the the better all off all of us are." There are some benefits to bringing your your bags. So that's point A, education. But if you simply tell somebody just in words, hey, bring your bags to the store, it might not stick. But if at point A you show these signs that some grocery stores are now starting to have in front of the store, a giant sign that says, bring your bag into the store, and if you're already building that cue in mind as you're teaching me about it, then when I park and I see that sign, I'm I'm less likely to forget because that sign is already a cue. It is also a strong reminder but I see it and therefore I'm I'm less likely to forget. So constantly ask this question of your viewers, what is likely that they will see or hear or do in their environment at point B and see if you can mention that at, at point A. I'll, I'll give you another example. You know, the uh, food pyramid? Mm-hmm. You've seen that a million times. Yes. People are reminding us how to eat properly and what proportions. And yeah,
1: it, it, I don't. I don't think tofu's on it. But uh, go ahead.
0: Tofu is not a chocolate. <laughs> might be just at the very tip of the pyramid, just barely.
1: And I'm. I've been lobbying the government to to add more chocolate to it. Just so you okay, know.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you. That would be it. it is uh, the food of champions. So. Um, As you can imagine, you can just simply uh, express that pyramid to people and just show it and hope that sometimes at point B, they will remember the the pyramid and the proportions and eat properly. What some organizations are starting to do now, let's just say you go to a buffet, which is a a pyramid killer. (laughs) 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 That's
1: a good way to describe it, yeah.
0: And instead of having the white plates that you typically extract from those uh, giant stacks of plates, you now have a plate which already has the pyramid on it in the proportions that you should be following. So see, that's your, your cue that something has to be done differently. And you're not relying just on people bringing that memory to mind. You're prompting them to act differently by helping them along the way. You
1: know that's interesting also because if the cafeteria or the buffet owner puts that on their plate and it's an all-you-can-eat buffet, people might yes. actually eat less.
0: True. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least uh, more <laughs> of the things, but in the right proportions. Right.
1: Right. So,
0: <laughs> so it doesn't mean that with one cue you're going to cure the world. Uh huh. But um, it does mean that you're helping your audience's brains along the way. And I think that one of the biggest mistakes that we make in marketing in sales in any communication content field is that we rely too much on other people's brains, cognition power to, to act. And unfortunately that power is in limited supply. We sometimes we can call it a willpower. And imagine after people have been exposed to a lot of information, they've heard not only your content, but many other sources as well. They go home, they come back to work. It's not that easy to bring to mind something that you have been exposed to a while back. So... That's why the more they can do to infiltrate yourself into people's reflexes or habits and be there, be part of what they're already seeing or doing is a much easier entry point towards persuasion than starting from scratch.
1: I recall in the book how you describe the limited amount that people remember, and then that small amount is very different for each person. So you talk about, you know, people retain very little and at random.
0: (laughs) And so I guess, is there
1: any other, are, are there other ways that, other ways we can control what they take away beyond what you've talked about so that we can trust that they remember and act on what we deem important?
0: yeah, so the I'm so glad that you mentioned that key word, which is control. So what I'm noticing from uh, from my research is the fact that not only do people forget a lot after about two days of being exposed to information, but the little that they remember they remember at random in the sense of what you take away might be different than mine, might be different than another person yet. And unfortunately, when people walk away from your content with different pictures of what just took place, decision making is going to be a lot harder. And why is that? Because then people have to reconvene and then how they have to talk about it. Then everybody has a different idea about it. So the more they can control that small segment that people take away, the easier you're making it for them to decide. So then the question is, well, how do we, take charge of that small thing that does stay there uh, over a prolonged period of time. And um, there, there are many ways. If we if we go back to the idea that memory is based on associating concepts, then you have to ask, OK, so what am I associating in, in people's minds and what am I directing their attention to? Because attention in many ways paves the way to, to memory. And these days, as you can imagine, we're so bombarded with so many sources of information that who knows what people pay attention to. So, um, to. But if you know what they're paying attention to, you can more likely rely on the idea that, that they're remembering. So um, let's just think, uh, we can think and do this exercise together. What are some things that have attracted your attention lately and we can deconstruct and, and figure out why? I'll give you an example and then uh, and then you give me one. Lately, I've been um, really inspired by marketing that does a great job by using pictures only without that many words or with no words at all like for instance i'm remembering the uh, brand bic do you are you familiar with bic you know the pens and pencils
1: and razors yes
0: and razors so mm-hmm. imagine a big a bic pen that has just drawn the uh, infinity symbol over and over and over and over and over and the idea is that that pen is is long lasting and they don't have to say anything. It just shows that it's a big pen, and that big pen has just drawn an infinity symbol symbol over and over. And um, and you get it. It's, it's uh, obviously that reminder of a, a picture is uh, worth a thousand words. But I'm finding it that it's harder and harder these days to express so much with just one picture alone. But that totally took me by surprise, just because I was expecting a description. And I didn't get it. I was allowed to contribute with the knowledge and with the words. So there's a nice interaction that happens when you extract the words that people may expect. And now they only have to look at a picture and come up with the with their own content. Self-generated content, by the way, is always memorable because if you think about it, after even after this conversation, you'll remember more of what you said versus what I said. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's why I try to say as little as I can in these interviews. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, what's something that has uh, has attracted your attention lately?
1: Well, my wife, is, she's going to get another puppy. Okay. So we're thinking about now. We're going to have two. Do- Both kids are off to college now. So I guess there's the, two- <laughs> the empty nest. So we have a one year old puppy, and now we're going to get a. A second one this weekend. So mm-hmm. I just been thinking about, oh, what's going to happen there? Is is that what you meant by what's what's been on? Yeah, my yeah. Mind? For
0: so yeah, where is where is your attention going? Because if you know where your audience's attention is going, then you have increased likelihood of of memory. Attention paves the way to memory. So if I know that you're looking at puppies and you already have one, now there is another. For instance, as a, as a marketer, I might attract your attention by using just a sheer repetition. I'm. Um, I'm reminded of, uh, of an ad that was uh, done by a, a coffee brand. And the idea of the ad was to, to say, hey, this coffee is good at any time of the, of the day. So the picture simply showed coffee cup that you would have at uh, 8.01 and then a coffee cup that you would have at uh, 10.03 and the coffee cup that you would have at uh, uh, 2.05. So you, you saw, I think, through the entire ad, maybe uh, 10 of them. So, I might say, for you, a puppy that you have uh, you had in two thousand and fifteen, and a puppy that you have at two thousand and sixteen, a puppy that you might have at two thousand and eighteen, I will have to think where I want to take it from there. But well, she seems no to be to buying me. a
1: new puppy every year,
0: so <laughs> see there you go so we would all draw a conclusion, but perhaps is this is the secret to a longevity in marriage, who knows um but Repetition is obviously the mother of memory, so the more frequently we see something, the more likely we are to remember it. But even in an ad or a marketing campaign or trying to convince somebody of something, if you show that an action happens with good benefits over and over and over, then you have another means of getting people to remember and also to act on on your idea.
1: Speaking of action, can you explain why surprise is linked to action?
0: surprise is linked to action because from a biological perspective surprise is always bad. We may not think of it as as bad when we analyze surprise consciously, but if you if you deconstruct the concept, you realize that surprise is a prediction error. And the brain is is one of the most advanced predictive engines in the in the universe. The reason that we prolong our survival is because we accurately anticipate the next moment. So we're constantly trying to predict what happens next. And this is where memory helps because if the brain is a prediction engine, then memory is its fuel. We are more likely to encounter or to predict what happens next based on things that have happened to us in the past. So retrospective memory is still useful, Prospective memory, which means acting on future intentions is constantly predicting what happens next and if the motivation, like we said, is strong enough, then uh, then we act. And surprise in this process has a very unique space because if we are surprised by something, that means we failed to predict accurately. However, the brain is smart enough to realize that I'm not going to dismiss surprises just simply because it didn't feel all that great. I'm going to pay even extra attention because every surprise is a learning moment. If I pay attention and I'm surprised this time, that means the next time that I'm faced with a similar circumstance, I'm not so. I'm not going to be surprised to the same extent. So that's why, to the amount that you can take the brain by surprise, is the amount of extra cognitive involvement and extra attention that you can hope to get from uh, from your audience. Like, for instance, let me think of, about some examples that have taken me by surprise lately.
1: That led to action?
0: Yeah, there was, um, okay, so let's just say um, French fries. Most people enjoy French fries. And uh, I remember seeing an ad from, from McDonald's that didn't, didn't say much about their fries, but they had organized their fries to mimic the Wi-Fi symbol. So you can imagine you can imagine the Wi-Fi symbol now instead of just the black lines that we typically see. Uh, curled up in a, in the typical way, imagine that those are replaced by French fries. And they were advertising the fact that if you entered that specific location, not only are you enjoying their fries, but obviously you're enjoying um, being connected. And I entered that location just because uh, just because of that. And the surprise element was the fact that I would have expected from a company like that to be advertising, obviously, their food, but instead they were advertising something else. So... <sighs> That caught my attention, and uh, and I acting on, it, I acted on it just because it, it felt in that moment that uh, I enjoyed I enjoy that surprise very much. Obviously, there are some unpleasant surprises you can create for for your audiences. But to the extent that uh, that you can attach a surprise with a reward, so staying staying connected was rewarding for me, then surprise will uh, will get you closer to an action. And um, and by the way, when we think about surprise, surprise quite often gets confused with novelty. Novelty simply means something you haven't seen before, but surprise simply means showing the brain something that you may have seen or experienced before, but not in that same way. So make sure that you distinguish between the two because they're two separate concepts.
1: Yes. Yes. And so did you get the normal size French fries or did you get the large order?
0: (laughs) I had to have a combination because otherwise you can't make up the Wi-Fi symbol if you only have one size.
1: Yes. Oh, it turned into a craft (laughs) project. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, Let's talk about the importance of being repeatable. Big uh, concept in the book. Why is being repeatable uh, important, and how can you convince others to repeat
0: your words? That's a, that's a profound question because often we talk about repetition as being the mother of memory and yes, the more you see things, the more you're likely to remember or the more you do things, the more you're likely to remember. But what we don't ask is how do we make sure that when we're no longer in the room or people are no longer faced with the content we created for them, they can relate what we said to somebody else. Uh, Like for instance, um, I typically say in my brain science workshops, people will forget about 90% of what uh, they're exposed to in about two days. And uh, that 10% that tends to stay there tends to stay there over time. So in the workshop, the one line that I want people to remember is what is your 10%? And I look at those numbers metaphorically because in business content, it's almost impossible to place a strict statistic as to how much people remember. We usually know it's, it's very little. So metaphorically speaking, what is your 10%? And that's a phrase that I hope people will, um, will remember and repeat. So as you create your own content, wonder if you're no longer in the room and you have one idea that you want to put on people's minds, is that idea easy to bring to mind? And scientists call this concept cognitive ease in the sense that if I if I can bring it to mind easily, Surely it must be then good and true. So if I can bring your concepts to mind, I'm already equating those with validity, which is a which is an extra benefit that you get out of a repeatable phrase. So for instance, you know, I, I know that everybody's familiar with the Brexit that um, that happened just recently. Their slogan was "Take back control." And that phrase was so easily repeatable, that a lot of people brought it to mind when it was the most important at uh, at the voting line. take the the recent uh, events that happened here in uh, in America as as the campaigns were still going on, if you were to stop ten people on the streets and ask them what is Hillary's slogan versus what is Trump's slogan. I guarantee that nine out of the 10 would have been able to easily repeat, make America great. Again, cognitive ease is one of your, your greatest tools that you can use in any content that you write. And the idea is this, if you make it easy for people to bring your content to mind, then you're more likely to influence action. And why is that? Because the brain is a cognitively lazy organ. And when it comes decision time, we would likely likely make a decision based on something that comes to mind autom- automatically and easily versus now I have to sit back and think about it. Now I have to expand more cognitive energy. I usually don't have that because I've already made 100 decisions before this one. So if something comes to mind easily, you're more likely for action.
1: And that's... Uh- Obviously, plays into the importance of brands and branding, and, and even back to the coffee maker I bought, which was a Keurig, which, by the way, is not a sponsor of this show, if anyone from Keurig is listening. <laughs> but I had used it before elsewhere, and I just seemed interesting, and I'd, and I'd seen it everywhere, and I'm sure that I picked it. It was like a shortcut so that I didn't have to think through this very carefully in making that decision.
0: Yes, yes. That's why oh, you may hear the... The statistic according to which 95% of our decisions are subconscious, I don't agree with that statistic. And um, I would question the validity of those numbers. I think people, what they mean when they quote something like that is they mean decisions that are not necessarily... so consequential on our lives like for instance buying a coffee maker or buying toothpaste if if you got the wrong kind not that many bad things are going to happen to you and in those cases indeed decisions are are made with without much cognitive power now if you were to go to the grocery store and you bought a type of toothpaste that if it was the wrong one after a while your teeth will fall out then I guarantee that that decision is not going to be a, a, <laughs> an automatic one. That decision is going to take a longer time to debate and make sure that indeed you're picking the right one. So usually when you think about decision-making, which is the ultimate in in influencing people's memory, because after all, why get to be memorable if nobody acts on what they remember? Right. So when it comes to decisions, just think about these four factors, and I included those in the book as well usually there is a a risk that happens with any decision that is made. There is a time delay between when you make a decision and the rewards that you get after making the decision. There is an effort that is being involved and there is a social aspect that is involved. So for instance, with toothpaste, if you, if you buy it, there isn't really a whole lot of risk involved. There isn't a whole lot of effort involved. You just reach shelf four and, and, and there it is. And uh, the, the time delay between you see the effect is very short. So you just use it that night and there you have it. You have beautiful teeth and, and fresh breath. And the social aspect is huge because people prefer those who have good looking teeth and fresh breath. You will probably have sex more often. So um, all those four aspects buying toothpaste are are met. But when it comes to bigger decisions like buying a new marketing automation tool for instance that may may cost a lot of uh, a lot of dollars and people's jobs may depend on making the right choice. Now you see how when it comes to the time delay between you see the reward and when you think about the effort that is involved and the risk that is involved and the social aspects, those four are so uh, impacted that, of course, decision-making is going to be a longer and uh, a harder process.
1: And this is... Uh, If I could just step on my soapbox for a moment, this is very, very important because you will often hear companies, maybe not marketers, but people say, oh, business-to-business marketing and and, and all that type of thing, it's much more linear, it's much more rational, and so forth. And I I couldn't disagree more because for what you've just explained, like if you buy a bad roofing job for your house or even a car, it's really on you. In other words, you... It's going to cost you money, and that's important or if you buy the wrong mm-hmm. toothpaste. But if you make uh, the wrong purchase for your for your business, whether you're the owner or not, <laughs> it affects it affects perhaps the life of the business, the lives of many of the employees. it affects your career, your future earnings. And yes. for that reason, I like to argue that business to business is much more of an emotional decision than buying the toothpaste that you're talking about.
0: Oh, absolutely, because the consequences, just like you listed, are quite often much bigger. But any decision really has an emotional component. And we know this from, from neuroscience, for instance, if you look at patients patients who have damage in the emotional processing areas of their brains, they could function IQ-wise fairly well. For instance, they will pass IQ tests and they, they could carry on a conversation, no problem but they can't function in any other aspect of their lives simply because they don't know if should i go in today or should i stay should I stay in or should I go out? Should I wear pants or not? Should I have the chicken or should I have the salmon? Every single moment is a decision that they cannot make simply because they don't have that emotional marker of this is good or this is bad. This is pleasant. This is unpleasant. So emotion is mandatory in any decision you would want your customers to make in your, in your favor because otherwise, if that emotional marker is absent, decision is a lot, lot harder
1: couple other questions that I think are going to be, uh, that are particularly relevant to the listener. Can you explain why stories are so effective at retrieving memories?
0: The stories from our evolutionary past is, uh, stories are not what we remember, stories are how we remember. If you can think of anything that comes to mind, typically they have memories, have a context in which something took place. So if I was to ask you, what were you wearing two days ago? I guarantee that whether or not you can retrieve a correct answer where your mind went immediately as I asked that question was, first of all, what was two days ago? And then you were asking, where was I two days ago? Who was I with? What was I doing? So you immediately place yourself into a context that's filled with sensory elements something that you see or something that you may have heard or somebody that you may have touched. So those sensory details in context are part of retrieving memories. And it's the same with timelines, because when I said two days ago, you immediately had to place yourself within a specific time frame. So you can't have a story unless things progress across, across a timeline, by the way. So that's one. There are a few segments of, of any story. What else goes into a story? Factual information. Facts, by the way, in stories are not that different. Facts are just simply zoomed in stories. Every good story is going to have some fact. It was 1969. Uh, it was uh, that car type or I, I, it was my brother and I. All of the good stories will give you some factual information. They will also give you some abstract and and some meaning as to why you're listening to the story in the first place. And any good story will have some affective uh, element, something that uh, made you feel in a specific way. So all of those elements, whenever you're retrieving some information, you'll notice that all of them, whether it's perceptive, cognitive or affective, will be present in, in some way. And because stories are part of the natural way in which we retrieve memories are the reason why we tend to to remember them a lot more. And unfortunately, in business content, especially if you're talking V2B, we sacrifice a lot of sensory details. We sacrifice timelines. We sacrifice emotion at the expense of factual information and abstract information. And sometimes we may derive some meaning from it. So we do very well cognitive-wise, but when it comes to perceptive elements and to affective elements, we fall short.
1: And fortunately for the marketing world, there's more and more discussion of using stories and helping uh, more businesses to understand just how how powerful they are and the effect that they have on people's brains. It brings to mind another uh, author who was on the show, Paul Smith, who wrote, uh, sell with a story. And quite a bit of the book, he was explaining why you, why stories are so uh, effective uh, in terms of the way the, the brain processes the information, just like you were describing. So one other uh, question, if we could just talk about content sacrifice, how much content is too much?
0: <laughs> so, that's the question that um, almost always lies and it depends answer. So, how <laughs> well, much you're, content… You're not seem- going to get
1: away with that on the marketing <laughs> book podcast. No,
0: definitely not. But let's let's analyze this because how much is too much? Like, for instance, uh, if you have watched the movie Avatar or if you have watched the movie The Martian, have you, have you watched those movies?
1: Actually, I, I haven't seen either
0: okay so you are one of <laughs> so the I'm, I'm
1: no help at all I'm sorry <laughs> of, the,
0: of the very few who haven't seen those yes Then for those of you who I don't get asked, out
1: much <laughs> I'm so busy reading these books
0: well here's this will be your assignment after this uh, this podcast so watch those and this will uh, get to the uh, to the question how much content is too much because okay. those movies are fairly long by, every, by today's standards they're almost three hours each and yet very few people get up to make a sandwich during those uh, those movies the, the attendance Attention is kept constant, and um, and and that's a good thing. So that means three hours. We have the capability to to stay focused. It bothers me, by the way, when I hear people say, "Oh, our attention span has decreased lately." No, Oh no, less than
1: a goldfish. They all say,
0: <laughs> "No, no, no." That's uh, those are just uh, numbers that are designed to um, to be some uh, some buzzwords, and yes. uh, definitely don't have that much merit. Because if we can stay focused for three hours to watch fiction, I mean, imagine this is the Martian and we are willing to suspend reality. So you're not even talking B2B content. You're, you're talking about something that uh, doesn't necessarily fully exist. And yet we're staying focused. It is possible to keep the brain engaged for a prolonged period of time. Our attention span has not decreased lately. What has happened lately, however, is our threshold for stimulation has changed. And if we answer the question, how much content is too much, the answer to that question is then how often are you able to, or for, for how long are you able to sustain people's attention before they have the feeling of switching to another task before they have the feeling of, oh, I can just check my uh, my messages really quick. So that usually comes from how often does the stimulus change because that's response to this craving that we have developed lately, which is constant stimulation. So movies, for instance, like The Born Identity or The Born Supremacy, have you seen any of those? Yes,
1: yes. Oh, what a relief. I have seen <laughs> those. <laughs> and I loved them.
0: The uh, Yeah, and, and many people do. And one of the reasons that they do is because they're so action-packed. Obviously, not every single scene is action-packed. It gets, uh, gets some relief every so often. But in some of those scenes, the average shot length in the, the Born Supremacy is 2.4 seconds. That means we are seeing so much stimulation before our eyes and uh, stimulus that changes constantly that it's very hard to look away. So the answer to the question, how much content is too much, is to ask another question, how easy do you make it for people to look away? Because if you have some content that is fairly dry and fairly dull and doesn't change, then after about, indeed, that, that goldfish metaphor then can come in very strongly here in the sense of, I will look away if you don't keep my uh, my stimulation going, the abundance of stimulation going. So 2.4 seconds I know is uh, is extreme, especially when it comes to uh, business to business content. But just know that these days you're dealing with a brain for which the threshold for stimulation has, uh, has changed. So the more that you vary the stimulus, the harder you're making it to look away.
1: You know, this brings to mind Marcus Sheridan is an author who's going to be on the show next week, his, his episode will, his interview will publish. And I can remember at one point he was talking about this issue as it relates to how long should videos be. And there's just some people are saying, oh, they shouldn't be more than two minutes or whatever. And (laughs) he was explaining how his, uh, for his company, they had some hour long videos and using the software that he uses and we use, uh, which is ours, we use Wistia, you can actually see when people are not watching it or, or mm-hmm. how long they're watching it. And he's saying, look, people are watching hour-long videos as it relates to a purchase they're about to make, so.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised, because if you indeed can vary the stimulation often, then you're making it hard for the brain to look away, to borrow from Hollywood terms, you provide a cut very frequently, in which case, the brain has been designed not to miss anything. So that's what it comes down to. Why is it that we want to see what the next moment brings? Because we don't want to be surprised, you see, we, we can connect it to what we were talking about earlier. The brain has been designed not to miss anything. And sometimes the corporate videos tend to be so boring. And imagine you may have a testimonial from a company leader, for instance, and it's just a talking head who's looking at you and talking, 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 talking. That stimulus, you will be, you'll get habituated to it very, very fast. So unless something changes, you will grab your phone.
1: Yes. So, Carmen, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: I want uh, everyone to ask the question, what is your 10%? As uh, as you're going off and you're creating new content for a marketing campaign or perhaps you're just simply writing a blog, Know that your audiences will, uh, will forget the bulk of it. Let's just uh, say a, a metaphorical 90%. So therefore, the more clear you are about the 10% that you want to put in their minds, the more likely the action because people decide based on what they remember, not on what they forget.
1: Great answer. <laughs> and you know what? I'm probably going to remember that. Yay. <laughs> so what books have inspired your work and career?
0: If we were to, to talk about classics, I love classics because uh, you're mentioning the word repeatability. And I think that is a, a definition of uh, something that is classic. is something that comes over and over again. It's, it's not boring. You could just uh, look at it and read it and, or view it anytime and, and still get satisfaction. And I remember a book from the past. It was called Moving Mountains. And uh, the subtitle was The Art of Letting Others See Things Your Way. So very much a, a, I, I, we can call it a marketing book in a sense, because if you let others see things your way, that means the more this is, by the way, the definition of the perfect negotiation. When everybody leaves the negotiation room having the same picture, then action is more likely. So letting others see things your way, I think, is is a good foundation for any marketing efforts.
1: Mm, I'm not familiar with that book, but we will make sure to put a link to it on the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Yes,
0: please. It's a, it's, a, it's an old book, a very old book. And you'll see as you're reading it, it's like, wow. Well, I think the, the author even used to work for AT&T, but in the early version days of AT&T. But the writing is impeccable. If you appreciate solid rhetoric with really strong meaning and ideas that are phrased in a, in a very po- almost poetic kind of way. Oh, it'll be a very satisfying read.
1: Good. So, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend, or are looking forward to reading?
0: Hey, I'm I'm writing a I'm writing a new one. So, oh, I'm,
1: <laughs> well, I'm, tell I'm us continue, about it.
0: I'm continuing on this uh, aspect of memory as an influencer of decisions because I think it's a it's a fresh approach to persuasion, and not many people are are looking at convincing others of their choices from the angle of of memory. And um, I will. We can definitely stay in touch um, in in terms of uh, what that book is going to shape up. But I do know that one of the chapters in that book is going to be called the right amount of wrong. And here's a challenge that I have for for any listener right now. When I say wrong, I don't necessarily mean something that's uh, illicit or uh, unfaithful or sinful. In in any way. What I mean is that element that you mentioned earlier, which is an unexpected twist, that uh, element of surprise. I just completed some research uh, recently on um, the most popular slide shares. Why is it that they become such popular? segments and people want to share them with others and people want to embed them in their sites. One of the common elements that I found amongst these is indeed the element of surprise, but the element of surprise used very sparingly. So for instance, if you have 20 slides in a slide share, not every single one is going to be surprising, maybe one or two. are So you're you're using surprise as caviar, not marmalades. So a challenge that uh, you could assign to yourself is if you have a blog of five paragraphs, see if at least one or two sentences can take your reader by surprise. And that's just the right amount of wrong.
1: Ah, interesting. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your book?
0: This book is called uh, Impossible to Ignore, and you can find it on Amazon or anywhere else that uh, books are sold. And um, our company's name is uh, Rexi Media, R-E-X-I. Rexi, by the way, comes from the Latin verb to direct or to guide. So as you learn more about these principles and especially how you can use brain science to influence others' choices, uh, know that you too are able to guide your audiences to, to what counts and make sure that you're in control of that 10% that they tend to sit to take away.
1: Great, and we'll make sure to have links to all those things so people can learn more about you and and follow you on Twitter and connect with you and so forth. The name of the book is Impossible to Ignore, Creating Memorable Content to Influence Decisions. The author is Dr. Carmen Simon. Carmen, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thank you so much and uh, stay in control of that 10%.
1: And that closes the book on episode 105 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and free marketing guides from my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you're looking for a book recommendation or have a question or a guest suggestion, here's how to get in touch. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burr-Dett or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, Marketing Book. I look forward to hearing from you. And please join us next time as we welcome Marcus Sheridan to the show to talk about his new book, They Ask, You Answer, a revolutionary approach to inbound sales, content marketing, and today's digital consumer. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.